Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Okay, it is six o'clock. We are going to kick this off. Uh, welcome, everybody. Um, if I could ask you guys to turn your videos off, uh, except Seth and Kimberly, um, just for now. When, when you're asking a question, we'll get you to turn it back on. But just so we don't break the internet, sometimes it overloads things. Um, after 7.30, we'll, we'll get you to turn it back on. That won't be an issue. Uh, and, and try and keep your mics off as well, please. Uh, but welcome to Wednesday Night Networking. Um, I'm Steve Kenyon, and we've got uh, tonight's topic is about carbon. And we got a couple of uh, uh, special guests tonight, actually, uh, Seth Eakin and Kim Cornish, um, both going to, you know, tell us what they think about carbon. I'm going to let them introduce themselves here soon, but I've got to do a, a little bit of uh, uh, introductions first. We are hosted here tonight by the Gateway Research Organization, uh, very grateful for them for uh, supplying the platform and, and helping us run this. Um, and also with uh, Grey Wooded Forge Association, they've jumped on to, to help sponsor this as well. So uh, thank you, uh, Brenda. If anybody wants to talk to Brenda, she's there. Um, she could turn her video on for a second and give us a wave if she wants. Um, but uh, they're actually helping us uh, cover uh, speaker costs and things like that. So um, very grateful to them. Now, I've been a big fan of the Applied Research Associations and Forge Associations across the province for many, many years. I've been on the Grow Board for on and off for 20 years. Um, if you guys have a nonprofit organization close to you that's you know promoting regenerative agriculture, uh, get a, be a member, uh, join the board, uh, give direction to it. I mean, it's a, a very useful, that's producer run organizations that uh, are given direction to this industry. So uh, we, we definitely need your help in the, the education you get from them, amazing, right? The last 20 years, I'm gonna give 95% of my education to the applied research associations because they're the ones that bring in the speakers and do the experiments and do the trials that are on the farm. And um, I just can't give enough uh, credit to what they've done for me over the years. So uh, very grateful for that. Uh, Kim actually was, is here tonight. She's representing a Finn tonight, but she's also on the uh, uh, Food Water Wellness Foundation. Um, she's a part of that, but the Finn conference is, is coming up soon. And I happen to know the organizer of that conference and it's going to be fantastic um i've been watching it's my wife by the way amber um she's uh, doing a wonderful job and uh, what she's got working out on her computer right now what i see is better than any conference i've been a speaker at so far this year so uh, i'm very impressed at how she's got that set up so you might want to uh touch base with the affin conference uh when is it kim it's the 9th through the 11th and there's like, we're having like more of an AGM in the afternoon on the 9th. And then there's two evenings on the 10th and the 11th. And Charles Massey is speaking on the 10th, which I'm really excited about all the speakers because we're really looking at how water is the, the role of water and forages and, and how those, all those pieces kind of link together with carbon and, and regenerative agriculture. So it's, I think it's going to be, I'm really pumped about it too, Steve. So. Yeah, when I when I first heard about it, I'm like three days. Oh, that's not very good. But it's just in the evenings, right? It's only part days, so it's not yeah. really three days long. That'll be awesome then. One afternoon and two evenings. We just thought, like you know, we all spend our whole lives at Zoom, you know, on Zoom calls all day that we could break it up a little bit. So yeah, I like that idea having it. Uh, I mean, you know, every Wednesday night is pretty easy to you know jump on too. So <laughs> I'm biased oh, yeah. that way. Uh, and uh, uh, Seth Eakins is from Soil for Climate. 
Um, he's uh, got a, a huge following on Facebook. He's been promoting regenerative agriculture and soil as a, you know, uh, climate change uh, solution for a long time. So, Seth, give us a little talk about yourself. What what, what what's soil for climate? All right. Well, first of all, hello, Stephen. Thank you so much for inviting me to this excellent forum. It's really an honor to be here. And um, and this is fun. You know, when I heard that I didn't have to show slides and it was really a little more informal and kind of kicked back, I was like, all right, I could use that. Um, <clears throat> so as people know, I'm the co-founder with my colleague, Carl Tiedemann of Soil for Climate. We're a nonprofit organization that advocates for soil as a climate solution. There are three principal areas, which we have traditionally said are our focus, and they're science, policy, and practice. And by science, we mean <clears throat> the science of measuring soil carbon and other indicators of ecological restoration, as well as climate. So the climate science and the ag science is sort of that interface between the ag and the climate sciences. And of course, carbon is an important part of it. It's not the only part, water is a big part too. But of course, there's a, there's a big relationship between carbon and water, which is interesting. <clears throat> um, policy is uh, the emerging uh, world of, uh, of healthy soils policy. And I'll say more about that later. Yeah, maybe I'll just be quick now. So science, policy, and then practice, of course, is the practices of regenerative agriculture, moving the animals to cover crops, the no-till, biochar, agroforestry, you know, all of those various practices, right? So those three, science, policy, and practice. But now we're, um, we're adding two more, economics and paradigm. And by economics, now we're talking about, you know, the economic models of rewarding carbon drawdown. And what is that going to look like? Or other biological indicators and carbon markets. And is that a good thing or bad thing? And then paradigm, well, that's the general sort of the whole umbrella. Like, like what really is even our understanding of, of um, you know, our sort of our role uh, in the planet? And... Um, it has occurred to me that paradigm can actually be a filter by which we can look at each of those other four areas now, science, policy, practice, and economics. We could look at both of those through a sort of a shifting paradigm lens. And, and later, um, after Kimberly does her introduction, that's the area I, I kind of want to go into a little more paradigm, if you will, a little more sort of um, kickback, you know, late night networking, you know, um, uh, kind of discussion. Okay, so so that's it for my introduction. Oh, and just one other quick thing. I think people saw today the New York Times did an amazing story on regenerative agriculture and Alan Savory, and that was really the big buzz today in the, the Sulfur Climate Facebook group. So hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about that a bit as well. Okay, thank you. Awesome. Th thanks, Seth. Uh, Kimberly, you want to tell us a little bit about a fin and a little bit about food, water, wellness, and your, you know, what do you what are you here for tonight? Sure. Um, so Alberta Forage Industry Network is a fin and it is, uh, it's, it's an organization that brought together a bunch of different stakeholders around the forage industry from export to, to forage production across the board. And um, I think they have a really, a fin has a really interesting role to play because 
forages play such a significant if we are going to look at how we can sequester carbon in the soil and forages play a really unique role in that. And I think um, probably colored by um, all the, the people that are on the board, there has been a focus on regenerative agriculture in the Afin community. And, um, and I think that that's, that, and I guess that's how I ended up getting brought onto the board. It's, it's, a, weird, it's a weird space for me because I grew up um, kind of around agriculture, but not in it. And I have these moments where I'm like, I'm on the Afin board. Like, I'm not really sure how this happened, but um, I founded Food Water Wellness Foundation in 2013. And the preliminary, the primary objective was just really to advance regenerative agriculture. And back, back in that day, that was a very different story than it is now, certainly. And um, one of the main mechanisms that um, we saw that was a lever about five years ago that we didn't think was getting maybe pulled the way that it could have been or, or was possible was, was actually being able to look at how we could measure find um, technology to enable better measurement and monitoring of soil carbon and, and looking at how that pla a platform that would do that could interact and could actually bring in multiple different layers of soil information that could give us more clue and information about how and why so carbon we were seeing carbon accumulating in soil under regenerative systems. So that's, that's ended up being, a lot more of my life for the last few years than I ever expected it would be. But um, it has been a fun, fun intersection. And I'm definitely like in, as Seth is talking about paradigm and policy, um, I think we're in a very, very interesting and um, ripe phase right now where those pieces can can come together because I think we've been caught in a policy matrix that hasn't really allowed us to to shift the paradigm to be able to represent what what's actually been happening out on farms and ranches for over 40 years in the Canadian prairies so and the American prairies too I just know the Canadian prairies better I know that we've got such an international crew on the call so I have to have to open up my language so. Yes. Uh, no Canadian slang here. We have trouble with that sometimes, or I do anyway. <laughs> uh, so just to let everybody else know, um, obviously it's a little bit different tonight if you're a regular. Uh, normally we have a, a guest speaker and then I'm the other speaker and we have a host that comes in. Well, Amber's job is to get the host and she told me that she was getting Kim as the host and it just so happened to be the same night that we had Seth on as a to speak about carbon and I was like are you kidding me Kim is not a you know a host when it comes to carbon she's she's one of our uh you know one of one of my geeks when it comes to carbon she's she's got all sorts of information about that so I uh I'm the host tonight so if things don't go smoothly you can blame me 100% I'm doing Amber's job tonight so I'm gonna let these two uh answer all your questions and you know I might uh chime in once or twice but I will try and keep my mouth shut as much as I can um I'm going to give my two cents after 7:30 when uh, when it when it uh, we we shut her all down. So um, we're going to let these two uh, 
uh, try and run the show and I'm going to try and keep questions rolling. So if you guys have any questions about carbon, um, fire them off in chat and I'm going to try and keep up to you guys. Cause I'm still admitting people at the same time. Seth, you want to start? What did you want to talk about your, uh, paradigms? What was it? Uh, I, I'm sure I, I would love to, um, uh, what is it? Wax philosophical, as they say, a little bit while you're waiting for you bet. for the questions to come in. So, so the, the sort of the four specific areas that people understand: science, policy, practice, and economics. And you know, and I mentioned that I mentioned them before. And you know, just a quick summary: I see a lot. Almost thirty more people have come in since the introduction. You know, science is the science of, of regenerative agricultural benefits, right? Carbon drawdown, water infiltration, uh, species composition, land cover, land temperature, um, <clears throat> measuring on the ground, measuring via satellites. And I know Kimberly will talk, hopefully, you know, we'll get into the satellite discussion using satellite data. How do you even truth the regeneration that's all the science part and and in each one of these areas there are people who are experts and and uh, in the conversation earlier when we were doing sort of the pre-interview kevin referred to me as, as an expert i said no you know I, I don't want to really be considered an expert i'm a generalist but um but these are the areas that that we recognize are important. And in each area, there are people who are absolute experts in the area, right? So in science, you've got Jason Roundtree, you've got Paige Stanley, you've got Richard Teague, you've got Stephen Applebaum. And, Thank you. and, and uh, you know, and, and so, you know, our job is to know about that and to help communicate it. I mean, I mean, I'm an activist, I'm an advocate, you know, that's my job. Um, <clears throat> and then, and then in terms of, policy, you know, again, well, the healthy soils legislation policy that's coming around and, and I and I put out the link there. So if you go to policy.soilforclimate.org and we're just we're just um, um, keeping track in the US, but of course there's international policy, there's federal policy. These are just even state policies. Um, and then the practice, of course, you know, moving the animals and all that. And then the, the economics is a value on you know, how do you value an ecological indicator? Okay, so, so, so that's the general arc of those four. But now from the perspective of paradigm, let's use paradigm as a filter to apply to each one of those four. Well, science has traditionally been reductionist, right? And, and th that's a good thing. I mean, if you're getting heart surgery, uh, you want to go to a heart surgeon. You know, you don't want to go to like a general holistic practitioner. However, the holistic practitioner might have been recommending vitamin D to you and omega-3, you know, fats, and maybe you wouldn't have needed heart surgery, right? And so there's the paradigm issue of the holistic versus the reductionist. Um, and then so in each one of these, we can do that. So policy, policy formation, as Alan Savory would say, has always been to solve a problem. Right. And it's like, oh, well, the water is running off the land. <laughs> so how do you deal with that? Oh, well, you build these trenches, you know, so that's your that's your policy formation to specifically solve a problem. And Alan would say, how about if we do holistic policy formation? 
where we try to look at everything at the same time and we try to get everyone involved. So again, there's the, the paradigm shift, right? And then, and then the practice, well, you could say the practice in the past has really been sort of one of extraction, right? More or less taking from nature. And, and now with the new paradigm perspective, we can ask, well, how do we give back to nature? Or, or, or you know, how do we manage in a way in partnership with nature? Right. So that's the paradigm. And then the economics, you know, the traditional economic model is really based on speculation and this, this sort of perceived value of, of some of some hard asset like gold. And and the whole economic model is based on this. Um, again, it's, it's sort of like this extra, um, uh, extractive sort of fixed asset. And now we have a new economic model where we're trying to value ecological indicators. You know, what is the value of carbon? What is the value of a watershed? What is the value of a, of a, of a biological service? And so that's how the paradigm is the filter is moving through each of those areas. So to me, that's really sort of like the exciting conversation, if you will. Okay, uh, thank you for letting me sort of pontificate here for a minute. Uh, I'm done. <laughs> You bet. We got we got a we got some questions rolling in now, Seth. So we're good. Um, we've got a question from Sunrise Ranch. If they want to open up. Hey guys, how are you? Can you hear me? You bet. Good. Hey Seth, pleasure to meet you. I've followed you for quite a while. I, I see all your uh, posts and Facebook. And Kimberly, we haven't met before, but it sounds like you've got something exciting going on there too. Um, I don't know who this is for. It might be for Seth. Might be for Kimberly. Um, my question is pretty basic. Uh, we are taking over a new facility on our previous ranch. We didn't do any testing. We didn't do any verification on this new ranch. I want to go in and I want to have a base, a set of baseline tests done. Um, whether I got to pay for them doing myself, I'm not even sure. Um, and I want to, I want to know it, based on your recommendations from a very practical perspective. And Steve, you might even have something on this is, is what tests do I have done? Uh, and, Obviously, I know how to map them out, right? We know where we do them, and we want to mark that and document that. But what tests do I have done so that, say, in 10 years, I can go back and repeat those tests and say, hey, look, evidence, we are, you know, we're reversing things, or this is getting better. Um, what's And you can be as broad as you want or specific. I just kind of want to start that discussion. Are and, you – I just – I have a quick question, just a clarifying question back. Is it – are you wanting – to sell carbon credits out of that improvement or are you wanting it for a monitoring of soil health and functionality yes yes because i and, and the reason i said yes and i'm not trying to trip you up kimberly is is i think that no matter where you fall on that spectrum that's going to be the wave of the future whether you like it or not so you might just be a guy with say 20 heads 20 cows and you just you know just having a good time and it's retirement and and you might want to, you know, make your tests and go, hey, honey, look at where we were 10 years ago. Um, on the other hand, I think that at some point, if this continues, we're all going to be forced to be able to say, okay, you, Mr. So-and-so, what exactly are you doing? Can you quantify? And I think we'd all be wise to say, well, on year one, we were here. And on year 10, we're here. So whether you want to pay me for that or not is your choice. But I think we're all headed that way. So I, I think it does, does. And does that make a difference in the tests? It, it does because it's a, you know, the indicators of just soil health and function are 
can be really, really simple and really cheap. And, 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 but if you're going to quantify carbon stocks and with a, with enough scientific validity that you can say, this is our carbon stock on year one, and this is our carbon stock on year five or 10, it, that's when it becomes really cumbersome. And, and that's, I think the biggest reason why we've seen like policy hasn't caught up to that possibility because it has been really cumbersome. And so we're working with um, Tom and Tom Hingle and Ishani Wheeler from the net in the Netherlands and with Envirometrics and Open Geo Hub. And they, they're, they're leaders in predictive soil mapping. And that is what is enabled us to um, do the project. We're doing this project called the Alberta Soil Quantification Project. And we're using 250 layers of machine learning or of, of remotely sensed data and baseline data that we have in the soil, in like the soil record in Egerstead, which is our soil, soil information service for Alberta. And it gets put into a machine learning algorithm. And then we look for unique combinations of in all of those 250 layers. And then we go out and we have a sampling plan that's based on that. And so when we go out and sample, we're taking meter deep cores and that data, when we process all that data and we need to sample for um, texture, bulk density, carbon, and gravel content are like the basic ones if you're going to quantify carbon. And then we're also looking at soil aggregate stability, and um, nutrient availability and and like a, a whole like I Seth and I were talking last night and I said it's like the kitchen sink of samples that we're doing for the most part respiration um, but those are really about soil health indicators and those are more on the why of carbon instead of the what of carbon and so, and did, so would, would we be biting off okay understand that probably the, the majority of us here tonight are not uh, you know, Nabisco, right? You know, I mean, totally. So, so is there, um, so to, to back up then, if we were to, to take your, my, your, your first question to my original question, which is, mm -hmm. you know, where do you want to go for, from here? It sounds like if, if we do try to set ourselves up for eventual soil uh, carbon sequestration management and payment, that we would need these giant scientific expensive tests. Is, is that what you're getting at? Because what you just explained was, I mean, you lost me about halfway through when you got to okay. 200 measurements. I was thinking we would go out and look at the pond and go, hey, we'll take a selfie next to the pond and it's doing much better. And it's doing much better. And like, and the, the thing that I always do tell people is that you can always archive soil and you can always run it subsequently. So if you take, I don't know. What do you know, mean archive well, it? Like you actually take a sample and keep it? Yes. Yes. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Cause you can go, you can go run those subsequently. And so oh, as long cool. as you have, you know, there's, there's varieties of different sampling plans. And I, I feel, I know Chris Nichols is on this call and I feel like I'm just like flying the wind out here without, because she could be, she could be chiming in for sure. If she wants to, she no pressure, Chris, but, um, but that's, that's a way that you can like, and, and we can, we can definitely, like Steve said, we can follow up with you afterwards, but there's numerous different ways that you can 
develop a sampling plan that you can actually be representative. What the technology we're trying to use and eventually make available so that it's you can run a sampling plan quite easily. You just would put your KML file into this computer learning algorithm and it would pull all the data and then it would spit out a sampling plan for you. Okay. So I think, I think you actually answered my question really well. If, if I've got, you know, like a $10 budget for this, I could go into take course and we could preserve them somehow so that when the, when the technology matures to the point that this is maybe more readily accessible by 90% of the people on the screen today, that we can just then go, Hey, you know what? I've got cores from when we started 10 years ago and we've been doing all these methods and now we take a current core and, and perhaps that's a good yeah. I don't know, take, overall plan. Take the core, like look up, like, and this is where we can follow up about like a sampling methodology that could be representative. But if you follow a sampling methodology that's representative, take the soil cores and GPS those locations and make sure you have record of that, then we can do something with the data in the future. That is, that is an awesome answer. And that, and I don't want to dominate this thing. So thank you very much. I didn't even think it would take that long, but I think that's a great start. And I'd love to maybe contact you guys after this is over to time follow up on that, but thank you. That Thanks for fine. answering my question. That was great. No problem. Um, yeah. So Kim, just a quick comment here. So the GPS sound that's the, you know, putting a, a rock on the spot that you did it, that doesn't count as a GPS locate location. No, it doesn't, it doesn't help. And I, and I, I've been data auditing and I can tell you how much it doesn't help if you just kind of remember where it was. You really do need that. You know, your phone does it. Drop a pin and then label it and, and just put it somewhere. You just need oh, yeah, your I just, I, I just have a lot of rocks, so it's pretty hard to find the spot after when I set a rock there. So, okay, next question is actually from Calvin if he wants to, to turn his uh, video on. Do you think regenerative agriculture will be the, in the next round of CAP funding? So I'm wondering, do we even have a next round of cap funding to begin with? But uh, Calvin, are you there? I'm just with the positive vibes that you hear everywhere in society today about regenerative agriculture. I just hope it'll be in the next round of cap funding in the next agreement in the next couple of years. Well, Kim, you just got a, a grant approved through the RDAR funding, which is the kind of the new cap funding. And I guess I could say that, wouldn't I? It is. And there are, there are organizations that are working to lobby to have um, regenerative agriculture or climate, climate solution-based agriculture as part of that next round of cap funding. So I know farmers for climate solutions are working on it and Equiterre out of Quebec is part of that. And they are dealing with, they're putting together policy recommendations around that. I really, my biggest interest in, in that, and so Seth, just for context and for everybody that's on the call that's American and not Canadian, it's the Canadian Agricultural Partnerships is what we're talking about. And it's a federal and provincial partnership. And that's how a lot of our funding, um, our research funding and also like extension and those kinds of funding that those kinds of funding bodies come together. So um, that's actually how our, our project is our soil carbon quantification project is being funded. And, um, and we went in through the environmental stewardship and climate change um, category. And so I think there with there, I think there's a high potential Calvin. And I think also um, environment and climate change Canada is looking at, at doing different projects, which look a lot like regenerative agriculture. 
Chris and I had a long conversation today and we just, the thing that we came to the conclusion about is that regenerative agriculture is there's lots of practices that we talk about in the scope of regenerative agriculture, but what makes it regenerative is that you're influxing carbon into the system and you're, you're regenerating soil. And that, that is, I think we get lost sometimes in all the different practices. And if it doesn't answer that, if it doesn't answer that main criteria, I, I don't believe it's actually regenerative agriculture. So I just, I hope that in the discussions of it, we don't get lost in the practices in of, of getting a funding or, and I know Cal, Kevin Almy is on this call and I, I'm not taking a crack at cover crops, but I've seen that they're announcing stuff that it's just cover crops and cover crops are amazing, but we need to be looking at the function that the cover crops are providing. They're creating, they're covering the soil and they're increasing the photosynthetic carbon that is being delivered to the microbes in the soil. And so without that, we just have to, we have to keep that focus on the carbon and the regeneration of soil, not just the practices that lead to that. Kim, you don't have to worry about insulting Kevin. I did a lot of insulting to him last week. So uh, Seth, uh, for the US people, um, the CAP program is a Canadian or Canadian agriculture partnership, right? That's our funding for grants and for for uh, things that are coming in. What about for the U.S. people? Is there any, you know, uh, grants and subsidies that are that are uh, available to down there? I suppose every state is different, but so um, if you look at the uh, policy map that I put out earlier, policy.soilforclimate.org. Um, you'll see the list of the state legislative efforts. You know, again, each of these, of course, is differently. These aren't grants. These are policy instruments to try to move the dial, if you will, you know, more toward regenerative agriculture. And, um, you know, Gabe Brown says famously, sometimes the best policy is just to get rid of the bad policy. And it's sort of universally recognized in the regen ag world in the states that that there's a lot of bad policy in terms of um, rewarding bad practices, um, you know, like subsidies for grains and, and then the, um, you know, the crop insurance, you can't even get the crop insurance unless you're part and parcel of the soil degradation, you know, practice, like, like you have to show that you're doing this regimen. Um, and then so the, the crop insurance, a lot of people are saying, you know, we need to just, just get rid of the crop insurance because that is connected to the paradigm of soil killing practices. And now, you know, the Biden administration is, is now putting forth or claiming to put forth, or at least this is the buzz in the news the last few days, um, you know, a plan to actually um, uh, pay farmers to sequester carbon. I don't know any of the details on that. I apologize. Um, but it sounds like it's moving in the right direction. Um, and in terms of the grants and stuff like that, I mean, the USDA um, is would be how you get your grants um, at, through at the federal level. At the state level, of course, everything is different. I would suggest also the best approach is to work with the regional conservation districts. Um, in, in terms of the policy work that I'm doing, 
the, the regional conservation districts are sort of like the vehicle by which policy formation gets taken seriously. You know, if you're working with the regional conservation district, then your local state legislator will listen to you, you know, and, and that seems to be a good partnership, both in terms of policy and in terms of funding. So those are just general pieces of information. Uh, next question is from Greg or Graham. There we go. Graham, are you on there? My, my question to Kim and, and Seth and, uh, the, is one of the things that came across my desk today in getting ready for the Canadian Federation of Agriculture Conference is assuming we had a positive change in soil carbon, how do we tell the distinction between how that change happened for a change in management versus how that uh, change in soil carbon uh, happened because of a change in climate? One being good agronomic and one one of the requirements then for a market instrument. Can you can our two speakers uh, uh, enlighten or, or add to that debate? You want to go ahead, Seth? Or I, I'm prepared to just answer really quick. Um, well, obviously, um, the climate is universal. Everyone is having the same climate, so you you know you need to measure against. Um, a similar farm somewhere else, or you know what what they call a, a, a fence line, you know measurement, or you know, or another region. In other words, the the the, the, cli the climate we're all in in the same climate. Always certainly like if you're in a certain area, you know everyone is having you know that there. So that's isn't shouldn't really be considered a factor. The factor should be how does it compare with your 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 baseline or your your control. Right, that's the typical way of doing science. There's a control group or a control farm, right? And so the climate, we're all, we're all the, the control group or farm will be experiencing the same climate impacts that you are. So you can sort of factor that out, okay? Yeah, and I, I just echo that. That's in our project, we've got um, a business as usual farm paired with a, a regenerative managed farm and there's obviously we're looking at the entire we're doing mapping on the entire property so there's a diversity in management within any farmer ranch so there's different things happening but um, we've got that business as usual baseline in contrast to the 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 regeneratively managed farm and so we can really see a uh, a, a strong difference in uh, we've uh, we've pulled cores 300 meters away from each other one in a regeneratively managed um grazing system and one in a conventional cropping system and it's shocking the difference in the soil and it is 300 meters away exactly same soil type ex and, and actually the crop was under irrigation so it had more moisture than the than the grazing system. And it, it, it looked like it was completely, like I know Grow has, Steve and Amber have, have pictures of, of soil cores that are shockingly different and the only difference is management. But our plan is to monitor going forward to always have those baseline, those, base, those business as usual sites to monitor against because I think there's some new data that's coming out um, through, there's been a 20 year now project where they've been monitoring carbon 
on in agricultural sites and they some of them are even under no-till and they weren't even hitting the sequestration rate of our recently retired conservation cropping protocol that we had in Alberta it wasn't 0.1 ton per per acre per year it was it's actually zero and and that's going to be in different systems but I think it's interesting to to understand that we really can't know until we are able to monitor on an ongoing basis. Excellent. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, next one is Greg, if you're on. Uh, how do we address uh, the influence of tech and money pushing an agenda of fake meat and advocating for eliminating the tool, in brackets, livestock, that can help most in sequestering carbon? So I guess that's about the uh, uh, Bill Gates uh, promo today. There, There you go. Seth, you were looking forward to that one, weren't you? I'm going to let Kimberly go first because okay. she'll be more concise and I'm just going to be all over the place on this one. Go ahead, Kimberly, you, you take it first. I don't, we're Food Water Wellness Foundation's working on a public agricultural literacy grant right now. Um, and it's called Bridging the Echo Chambers but, uh, around livestock's impact on the environment. And so I've, I've gone down a rabbit hole of both uh, regen and you know cows can save the planet and the other flip side of you know they are the most evil thing in the entire world and that is they are solely responsible for climate change um and i but i guess my my ray of hope in that and what we're hoping to do in that project is we have an advisory board with um someone that owns a feedlot and someone that has that is a vegan and and it is amazing listening to them um, discuss things. And one of the first things that came out of our first advisory meeting was that if you look at shared values and you look at what, what actually people can agree on and, and isn't a disputed fact. So are we ever going to agree about whether or not, um, you know, if, if, you're, if, people, if someone is a vegan, they probably aren't ever gonna be like, yay, cattle is going to save the planet. Like that's likely not going to happen. But if we can look at, at unifying themes and what emerged out of the beginning of this project is that if you, at the core, people want a healthy environment and people want animals to be treated well. We want animal welfare. And, and if you talk to a lot of people that raise cattle and a lot of vegans, that actually, those are harmonious. And I think if we can start a discourse around how we're working we're cut our hows are different but our goals are actually not that not that different i think that's that's my hope that maybe we can start to bridge some of the discourse because we're just we're you know the world at large is highly 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 polarized right now and so i think if there's a way that we can start to within our own language look at ways that we're we're what we have in common instead of how we are totally not on the same page. Seth, were you going to add to that or? Oh boy. <laughs> I don't even know where to get started, Stephen. I mean, this is, this is really my life is arguing this point. That's a big um, topic for you. That's what you do. Yeah, every this, day, is, all day this long. is a big topic for me. Um, all right. So, so what I'm showing is a slide called the coevolution of grazers and soils. Uh, this is Retallic 2013. Okay, uh, the global cooling by grassland soils of the geological past and near future. Global cooling 
by grassland soils of the geological past and near future. And right here in the abstract last sentence, modern grassland ecosystems are potential carbon sink already under intensive human management and carbon farming techniques may be useful in curbing anthropogenic global warming. And then the, the previous uh, part, global expansion of grasslands and their newly evolved carbon rich soils called mollusols over the past 40 million years may have induced global cooling and ushered in the, the Pleistocene glaciation. So Pleistocene glaciation is just a fancy way of saying the age of ice ages. He's basically saying that the expansion of global uh, uh, grasslands with ruminants is what created the age of, age of ice ages in the first place. And and this is um, from his paper. And this is where the paradigm comes in. And this is what people don't get. Our entire climate paradigm sufficient to create human evolution is the result of the co-evolution of grazers and soils. That's even why we're in this climate paradigm that we are now. Without that, the world would be much hotter and much wetter. We're actually sort of in a, in a, in a cooler, drier climate because of the co-evolution of grazers and 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 mollusols and the slide that I'm showing that, that people in the podcast can't see is from is from the paper. So look up Britalic 2013, and the slide shows how the evolution of of soil depth with uh, with grazers and that soil is a carbon sink and it's a massive carbon sink. And then here's another paper called the 40 million year history of atmospheric CO2. Um, from Yang, uh, 2013. And then this is his, I'm um, showing now a graph that shows um, the profound change in CO2 with various proxies um, of as, as much as potentially 1600 parts per million, 40 million years ago to, to today, which is, you know, well, we just went over 400 parts per million. So profound drop in CO2 over 40 million years. And how did that happen? It happened because of the co-evolution of grazers and ruminants. And I'm showing now a composite slide that shows pictures from Ritalik and, and from Yang. And so you see, it's a, it's a perfect match. And, and, and that's Ritalik's whole point. It's that co-evolution of grazers and modern soils, which created the climate paradigm that we're in in the first place. And, and so, and so you, you see, this is, this is the paradigm issue. Now we get to this notion of paradigms. You're, you're debating with people about less meat or we need to get rid of cows. Like you're completely missing the point. We would, there wouldn't, wouldn't have been human evolution at all. If not for the, if not for the evolution of, of ruminants and, and the soils. That's why we're in this paradigm in the first place. There literally was sort of like a battle between the grasslands and the forest and the grasslands over the last 30 million years for all practical purposes won. You know, they became the dominant ecosystem on the planet. And, and that's what put pressure on the forest, which is why the primates, you know, they were running out of protein, frankly. And the evolution of humanity is literally the evolution of trying to get protein. And the protein was what? It was these large mammals on grasslands. So you see the whole, this whole conversation about meat or not meat and Bill Gates says, oh, we need synthetic beef. It's like, it's like you're on another planet. You're completely missing the point. That's not how planet Earth works. Planet Earth, Earth works with 
ruminants and soils and the climate as a co-evolved system and humans evolved eating protein and fats from, from large ruminants. That is the story of evolution. And the only way we get back to a safe climate is by restoring these soils. And the only way we, we do that is with ruminants. So even if we didn't have to eat, even if all of the protein were miraculously you know, gotten off of Mars and, and Elon Musk spaceships, you know, gave it to everyone. It doesn't matter. We still need to vastly increase the number of ruminants on the planet and we need to regreen the Sahara Desert and we need, we need to regreen Southern Africa and East Africa where we're working in Kenya and the Middle East, you know, Iraq, Iran, those used to be some of the best grasslands in the world. We need to we need to restore Southern California. We need to do profound restoration of the world's depleted soils. And it's only going to happen predominantly through managing ruminants properly. There are other techniques also, obviously, but that is the principal technique on most of the world, which is some sort of dry land ecosystem. Okay, well, there you go. You asked me that question and that's what you get. Thanks, Seth. Uh, next question is from Nathan. It's not really a question, but I'm curious about his comment. So Nathan, are you there? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm here. Uh, your, your question about, about technology or your comment about it. You want to explain that a little bit and see what, the, see what we have? To, let's, let's chat about that. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, so uh, just looking through this list, I uh, felt pretty uh, strongly that, that technology and uh, how we choose to use technologies uh, in the really broad sense. So technology is everything from uh, soil testing technologies to tractors uh, to the internet. I mean, this to me is all tied into our local resilience. And uh, so learning how to use technologies on a local scale uh, that are resilient and are not dependent on uh, larger external systems um, that we as the individuals in those systems can't really uh, control. Um, I think, you know, that it, it has become a really important keystone in our development of our regenerative farm and the way that I've chosen not to do any soil tests and to do everything based on uh, what I can learn from observing the plants themselves growing. And it's been really hard to do it that way. But I think as a result of doing that, I have a much deeper connection to the land uh, than I would have had, had I done it all from the seat of a tractor. Um, so th that was that was why technology felt uh, important enough to sort of be included on that list of core areas where uh, the paradigm shift uh, has to happen and is happening uh, that you continue to talk about. I think I look at it um, through the lens of, of using technology as we can to better understand. Like, I think that approach that you've taken is, you know, it is definitely reweaving that indigenous um, understanding that we had of the landscape. And I, I'm, because Charles Massey is speaking at the AFIN conference, or I've, I've definitely, or AFIN AGM, I've definitely dove into the call of the reed warbler. And, and the thing that keeps like my background actually came, I came to regenerative, regenerative agriculture and permaculture 
through um, working with the Kalahari Bushmen in sub-Saharan Africa and, and understanding their natal um, connection to the plants and, and the land and how, and how their survival was completely hinged on this. And I feel like I'm probably waxing a little philosophical here, but it, the, the technology that they had available at that point was very sophisticated because they had an entire oral history oriented around their awareness of the landscape. And Charles Massey talks about that with the indigenous people in, in Australia and how that was so woven, that knowledge was so woven into the basis of their culture. And I think from a paradigm perspective, that is for the most part what we've lost in, in Western agriculture. And in, unless we get that back, we're not going to have that ability to, to truly regenerate land because it is through that awareness. But I feel that we have an opportunity as we're getting more and more sophisticated technology to help us make those connections again. Um, Chris, I'm like, again, I like, I'm going to misquote Chris on this story, but the evolving understanding we have of the microbes in the soil has changed because of technology. A lot of the reason we focus so heavily on NPK was because it was an easy analysis to do. And we understood chemistry and that, and it seemed to work and things grew. You put on NPK, things grew. But when you understand the the vast universe that is the soil microbial world is, and, and it's changed as we can understand it more and more. If we can use genomic sampling, then we can understand better and better what's actually even there. Cause we've, we've only, the only soil microbes that we actually already know are th ones that are easy to culture in the lab. And now with soil genomics, we can look at a whole picture of what's there and how those interactions between the microbes impact our ability to sequester carbon in the soil and, and those processes that Seth was just talking about. And I think that, yeah, we have this opportunity. Chris is just like, she's casually, casually added a comment that summarizes my whole rant. But it, I think that we have, there's technology does exist on every different level. And if we can mobilize it to help us look at things in systems and cycles and move to the paradigm where we understand that we are not disconnected and that agriculture doesn't happen in a mechanized box, it happens in a living ecosystem, that's when we will actually see a shift towards regenerative agriculture en masse. I actually got ahead of myself here. Um, I got a question from Richard next, actually, uh, testing for carbon alone, good enough. Richard, are you there? Yeah. And then we'll yeah. carry right after. Hello from the Mid-Atlantic, Maryland. My question is, is testing for carbon enough Shouldn't we also be testing for water infiltration, water quality, biodiversity above ground and below to put a check on gaming the system and making it about carbon credits alone? We want to be sure there's living soil and it's really healthy soil, not just that it happens to have a lot of carbon in it. Kimberly, why don't you take that one first? I'll add something. Okay. Um, absolutely. I think we should be, we should be looking at a holistic picture of what's happening in the soil. Um, and I think that, you know, different things, even soil aggregate stability is, is such a significant piece of, of the picture from, 
in my opinion, because if you've got really great soil aggregate stability, it's telling you that you've got infiltration. It's telling you that you have enough carbon coming into the system that you're supporting mycorrhizal fungi that, and that's producing glomalin, which is giving you those water stable aggregates. It's telling you you're sequestering carbon. Um, carbon unto itself is a key performance indicator, which just, if you are seeing increases in carbon, legitimate increases in carbon, not putting on biochar or whatever. And I think that there is, there are means and there are subsample tests that you can run where you can look at what carbon fraction is actually accumulating in the soil. And that will tell us explicitly if that's being photosynthetically derived carbon that's accumulating in the soil or not. Um, but I think all of those factors help. And I think they're actually all quantifiable as another ecological good and service that can, there can be a market for as well. And I, those, those elements are, they, they tell the whole story of not just the carbon in the soil, but soil health. Yeah. What I just wanted to add to that real quick, um, is that a couple of weeks ago we had yeah, Soil for Climate hosted its own webinar. Uh, it was titled Priorities for the Next Secretary of Agriculture. And the speakers were Ray Archuleta, Aria McLaughlin, and Stephen Applebaum. And at some point around the 30-minute mark or so, it just got into this fascinating conversation about just that topic. And Ray Archuleta was saying, we can't just do carbon alone. And he was saying it won't be fair because there's too much variation um, in the upper layer, and we need to have a biological index. And he was really advocating for that. And I've dropped that link into the chat to everyone. It's called Priorities for the Next Secretary of Agriculture. Um, and that link there goes to the YouTube. And if you just kind of like advance, you know, advance up to around the 30 minute mark or so, it just gets into this amazing conversation between these two real scholars and practitioners in the area. And uh, that really like, you know, that kind of blew up the internet at the time because it was, it was really a profound conversation. You know, Ray was saying, you know, carbon won't work as an indicator. Um, we need much, we need much broader. And Stephen was saying, well, you know, it can, if you go deeper, it can't just be the top layer. You need to go deeper. And then they were talking about what other indicators could be. Anyway, I don't, I don't have that answer, but that is clearly an important topic. And if you want to see two masterminds debating it, you know, check out this video. I just gave you the link to. Excellent. Thanks, Seth. So you might have already partially answered Larry's question. Uh, Larry, you want to come on and, and what, what did Seth miss on your question there? Seth, I really enjoyed that presentation you had on Facebook. Are you going to be able to take that information now and present it to people that are working in the government and what they're working on? It's great that you had that discussion on Facebook, but we need to get it out beyond that. Is there, what are your plans of doing that to move it on further? Uh, we're, we're trying to bribe as many people as we can. <laughs> this is supposed to be an after hours session, right? <laughs> um, well, you know, at the policy level, you know, fortunately, we have colleagues who are pretty close um, to legislators and certainly Aria McLaughlin. I mean, that's her area of expertise is federal legislation. And she knows the uh, staff 
of many of um, senators and congressmen and women in the US government. And this is what she does. You know, she does this all the time. She's constantly trying to bring them up to speed on this. And um, hopefully we'll have an interview with, um, with Congresswoman Pingree from Maine. And she has introduced something called the Climate Resiliency Act. And um, I'm really hopeful that's going to be our sort of uh, entry point into, into U.S. Congress and really getting more progressive um, healthy soil legislation at the federal level. And so long way of answering your question, this is the, the ARIA was the third. She was technically sort of like a speaker host, um, but she's very connected at the federal level and she'll be bringing the learnings from that to the, the congressional people staffers. I mean, this is really how it works. You work with the staffers and then eventually you speak to the Congress man or woman and you know that that and then if you're working with the conservation districts you know that's how legislation boils up so i don't know does that answer your question that's a good start and what's all we can do is start at it but i really like the discussion that you had that day the the where the two of them started going back and forth i was blown by the information flowing out of the two of them and to me, i'm thinking the part about the bird sitting on the fence line and which direction they're facing. What an indicator. That was a big thing to take away for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, if only that could be a scientific indicator for people who are wondering what we're talking about. Uh, Ray Archuleta was talking literally birds, not figuratively, but literally the birds were lined up on the fence and they were facing the better pasture. You know, well, gets gets back to the, the call of the, you know, the weed wall war, so. So birds, certainly birds themselves are an indicator and AVA, avian counting will be an indicator and, and pollinators, bees, you know, is another indicator, weed insects. Kim, what about in Canada? How do we get to the politicians? Any thoughts? <laughs> I don't think my my government relations is, is sophisticated as Seth's by any stretch of the imagination. But I think that um like the the federal government is now working on an offset protocol on soil carbon. And how that tracks will determine what our availability is to quantify. Um, changes in soil carbon going forward and the methodology they pick will will have a significant impact and so it, anyone is uh, eligible to write in and um, talk you know talk to the environment and climate change Canada around what's going on because I think at that right now in Canada that mid-level policy has a huge impact on what will go forward and if producers, agricultural producers are looking for something that will um, allow top performers and people that are, that are not that, you know, if we're doing a, if we're doing an offset that is based in the way we've done offsets always in the past, where we don't base it on farm scale measurements and we look at um, coefficients that are developed through research that those high performers are going to get thrown, they get thrown out of the, out of the equation because they're an outlier. And, and I think we should, I personally feel, and that's probably why I've spent 
the last few years doing what I've been doing, wandering around playing Pokemon Go out in the field with the GPS, chasing invisible points that have been computer generated is because I think that we need to not just we don't need to throw out those top performers. We need to start emulating and we need to find pathways for other people to emulate those top performers. Because if, you know, it's, I've seen it across this province in every, in every ecosystem we've operated in, in different soil types and different, different climates, different rainfall gradients, different temperature gradients. And, and there's, you can see a dramatic difference in the soil carbon. Just, you can see it when you pull the core. And, and so I think that, you know, having discussions about this at, with Environment and Climate Change Canada, at, I'm, I'm not sure where we're at provincially currently, but I think federally there is both with the department or with the Ministry of Agric Agriculture and Environment and Climate Change Canada, there is a great ability to, to have some impact. And I know the Senate is looking at a soil health potential project too with Senator Rob Black. So, Excellent. Thanks, Kim. Well, because I'm pretending to be Amber right now, I know right now she would jump in and say, well, the last coffee shop talk that the Gateway Research Organization did was uh, all about carbon and how Microsoft bought carbon off the farm in, in Australia, uh, Stuart Austin. And uh, she would also probably say right now that the next coffee shop talk, just for anybody who's interested, um, off the record, it's going to be with the Minister of Agriculture. So that's pretty exciting stuff. So we're going to we're getting our, our voices out there and we're, we're getting heard. So um, awesome. We're, we're making progress, guys. I think we're really growing. Okay, next question is from IT1749. You might want to give us your name first there, IT. Hi, yeah, it's Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Uh, yeah, so my question uh, regarding methane and uh, the implications towards cattle, um, and I might be off base on this, but like if when you know a cow eats uh, grass and the biology in its stomach and its rumen turns that into methane and that is emitted, um, whereas if that grass isn't consumed by a cow, it senesces, it dies. Biology in the soil that's often very similar biology to what's in the rumen does the same thing to the plant material. Um, you know, I know like mesentrophic bacteria play a role in that and the emission or the methane from cattle varies significantly based on multiple factors, fiber, genetics, et cetera. Um, but like, just wondered if we could discuss the, the fact that if cattle don't eat the grass, it's, there's still going to be methane produced and, and the methane that cattle are producing is part of a natural cycle and, and how that contributes to the conversation. I think Seth should go first on this. <laughs> I like, I, I think I, it's probably my turn to go first, but I feel like Seth has like probably just like the stock answer on this. So, I, you know, I'm sort of embarrassed if I'm like hogging the show here. Um, so the whole methane, yeah, here's my stock answer. The whole methane issue is a canard. There you go. Just, just 
it's a canard, just forget it. Um, the methane, uh, the measurable methane on the planet started to go up 5,000 years ago when we learned how to um, grow rice. Rice is a major contributor of methane, and if people really cared about it, they would be arguing um, against rice. And um, in terms of cows, you're absolutely right. It's a natural part of the cycle of the, the rumination. It's basically the result of the digestion of cellulose. They have to produce methane, and yes, if they don't, if they don't eat the grass, then it, you're right, it senesces and it becomes a fire hazard. And that's part of the reason why you're having fires in California and elsewhere in addition to everything else is because they're not having proper grazing management and they should be having goats and cows, frankly, moving through the forest areas as well and doing silvopasture. So cows are actually, and goats are actually essential for fire mitigation and weed mitigation and then when you build the soil depth, you get the methanotrophic bacteria, which metabolize the methane. Um, and so the whole methane conversation is, is really a canard. Where, where it works, where it makes sense, is when you talk about like a manure lagoon at a CAFO. Well, okay, obviously that's a problem. A manure lagoon and a CAFO concentrated animal feeding operation you know, factory farm. Yes, factory farms are deleterious for many reasons. And the manure lagoon, I mean, the whole concept of a manure lagoon is an affront to common sense anyway, right? I mean, the manure should be in the field. So, so again, these are nuanced conversations. And cows are essential to restore soil, including restoring methanotrophic bacteria in soil and they're also essential to keep the grass growing and to keep the grass from dying and turning to desert and that was alan savory's whole point during his climate talk uh, during his ted talk i mean the climate part of alan's message is only recent i mean for 50 years he's just been talking about reversing desertification climate wasn't even you know on the radar he was talking about reversing desertification so yes, and then the, most, most of the world is suffering desertification because there aren't enough animals. <laughs> That's the point. There's actually, there's actually a paucity of animals. It's not being impacted enough. Awesome, Seth, I, thanks. The thing I would, I would just add to that is that, and I, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of how we've modeled um, climate impacts of, of different things. But when we look at how some of the, the baseline, like the century model and how it was developed, it, we're using, like the methane cycle is a 10 year cycle. And when the methane's released, it then pulls apart into water and CO2. And so we're, but we're treating it in a lot of the models like it's a hundred year greenhouse gas, not a 10 year greenhouse gas. And that makes it confusing as to what the global warming potential of the methane gas is. And the beyond that, the way that we've modeled underground like soil carbon sequestration is based in not the most up-to-date 
science. Um, we're working with Majid Iravani with Alberta Biodiversity Monitoring and and Monterey Farmazari, who's a water modeler. She works with the SWAT model. But we've had a lot of conversations in this work that we're doing and, and in with discussions with Chris Nichols uh, into how the complexity of what's happening, what we're seeing under re regenerative grazing systems isn't being cited in the models. Like it's it's not that that stabilization of carbon that's happening within soil aggregates. That's relatively new science. It's in the last six-ish years that we've seen like the seminal papers come out around that. And so that's what you're that's when under regenerative systems where we're seeing these like mass accumulation of carbon, like it there's still lots of people that believe you can't change soil organic matter in your lifetime. And and in the scientific community and probably in the agricultural community. And so when we're looking at that, we still have some of our baseline assumptions coming from those part, that element of science, like the, the, that, that older view of how, it, how, how that cycle of methane and, and carbon interact in, in a cycle in a grazing system. And I think that that's, that's a, for me, that was a big under, I didn't understand we weren't talking about photosynthetically derived carbon being in the soil. Cause that is, that's where I came into it was that through that understanding that that's where the carbon was coming from that we were seeing, but it was actually based on an idea that we're getting most of the carbon accumulation is coming from above ground biomass just and litter breaking down. And in a regenerative system, that's not what that's not where you're getting your source of carbon. Most of that carbon gets eaten by microbes and gets respired back out. And so without that understanding of photosynthesis and the root exudates and all that fun, complex interaction that's happening below ground, we're not understanding the true models. And so when we're making cows the bad, we just there's so many levels of complexity that aren't being really told in that story. So that's my tangent. I'm sorry that wasn't as articulate as it could have been, but I hope it I hope it was clear. Very well done, Kim. Uh, but that's what I was taught in college that you got to break down the, the residue and left and it would take 30 to 40 years to rebuild soil. Come on now. What do you mean they're wrong? <laughs> Okay, uh, Barb's next question. Um, I asked a couple questions. Which one were you looking at? Uh, about Biocar. Oh, okay, so you said, Kim, something about like it's not like as much of a legitimate carbon sink if you're using biochar, but that's just because you're adding the carbon in to the soil. So it's not really like you're not actually capturing it down. It's an additive. So, but how can you? Um, like, how can you measure what you are capturing if you are using biochar? This as this gets like a little complicated, and I know Seth has actually quite a bit of experience with biochar too. So I don't want to please jump in over me if I'm saying something incorrect because I don't. I have a preliminary understanding of this, but the, the biochar is being a climate solution is that it takes wood and and puts it into a format that sequesters carbon in the wood and doesn't release it. So it's like that's forest carbon that you're 
you're keeping in a stable form through biochar. And then it works as an amendment in soil or in cattle feed or in those different mechanisms. And so that's, that's like a different set of calculations because it's forest carbon that you're offsetting, that you're getting, you're, you're preserving. Whereas the carbon that we're looking like in soil, when we're looking at soil carbon, we want photosynthetically derived carbon to be like coming from the atmosphere and stabilizing in the soil. And so it's, it's just like a different set of calculations, but there's, I, I, I don't know where, and maybe Seth does or Chris does, or someone on the call does, please throw it in there. Oh, wait, there we go. Um, Carl, Carl's got it. Um, but is, it's that they're just, they're different calculations. And so when we, when we're looking at it with biochar, but there is, there's like, we're bringing on a new postdoc and he's looking at the carbon fraction and he can actually determine where the carbon's coming from. Cause he said there's, he worked in Mexico and there was two fields and they're both increasing their soil carbon. One's burning cornfield and another one is using cover crops and they're both increasing their soil carbon, but one is doing it through the burning of the carbon and the other one's doing it through photosynthetic derived carbon and so if you were just doing a straight carbon test it looks like you're getting it but that he can actually tell the difference and so that's like another layer and you know in the world of too many soil tests i i get that that's just adding another level but if you're trying to validate atmospheric carbon being sequestered in the soil i think it's critical and if we can see the rates that are possible I think it's worth it to, to really be able to validate that. So does that answer your question? I think so. I'm really new to all of this, so I'm not 100% sure even like what I'm trying to get at. I'm, I'm just like, I'm super into the whole idea of biochar. I've been following um, Living Web Farms and they have a really good masterclass on that. And I just, and, and also just like um, using mulch too, like does that change what you're getting in your, results you know it's just there's so many questions about the science part of it that i don't totally understand and i want to do the best that i can do to to draw down carbon i don't want to cause more problems welcome to the club of not knowing what we're doing <laughs> but thank you kimberly i appreciate it seth you got hey, some dad hey could i just interject here steve sure yeah, I What's think up? biochar is really important for uh, a small scale, um, like a vegetable garden or, or things like that, right? Um, essentially, you just take, like you, could, you can create it if you want. You just cook your wood till it's, you know, black and then pour water on it. But uh, I think if you just use it as a, as a resource, like your ashes or things like that from your fireplace inside, your fireplace outside, and just use that, in, in a small scale, just your kitchen garden or whatever, I think biochar is very useful. So cool. uh, can, I, can I say one more thing? Is that like the, the people that I've been studying with the Living Web Farms, they're actually building uh, stoves to do this as efficiently as possible. It's not just like the pile up your wood and burn it and then wet it. Like they're actually using, kind of looks like a rocket stove, but it's got a different configuration and they're using that. And they, they also have really big ones that they're making out of, um, like some sort of recycled material they're like 300 gallon drums and so what they're doing is for large scale and it's more efficient it's not wasteful it's not throwing smoke um 
So I'm just, I'm kind of a proponent of it, even though I don't know enough to be one yet. <laughs> I just think that it's really, you know, it's pretty amazing. The lifespan of the carbon sequestration of that is pretty incredible. So, but thanks guys for your answers. Okay. Uh, actually, Barb, you had another question that actually I think will be really good for uh, uh, everybody else here too. What is a good resource for getting a broad overview of all the different theories and methodology of regenerative agriculture? Yeah, I know yeah. Riddell oh. Institute is one. Uh, <laughs> list of places to go to or for people here to, if they're interested in going to find more about regenerative agriculture. There is, there is evolving websites and I, I definitely think that um, there's with a higher focus on soil health and across the board, there's, there's lots of interesting resources, um, grow, obviously greener pastures ranching has a definite mechanisms of, of sharing that. And I think the applied research associations, so many people are doing really great webinars and that is incredibly useful. Um, you just want to keep an eye out for, where the information's coming from and um if if it has a producer you know has a has science credibility and also producer um experience attached to it i think like there's the market is being flooded with it um in a lot of ways um but there's it's it's just kind of it's worth being really clear about who's producing the information and what they're their motives are that's my that's my only that's my only thing i will i will avoid the full rant on that but do, do you have other resources i would say if anybody wants to uh, add to the chat if they know good resources for regenerative agriculture by all means add it to the chat seth what are your resources to what are your go-to places yeah you know i'm embarrassed to say i don't really have um a concise answer to that um, I think Rodale is great. Um, I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pass on that question for now because there's other things I also want to get to. Okay. Um, yeah, let's just add a list to it. I think a couple of weeks ago somebody asked me to do that, and I went on my Facebook page at Greener Pastures Ranching, and I opened up a list of all the places that people could go to. So a few weeks ago, uh, we did that already. And uh, we had a huge list of, of books and seminars and people to follow and videos to watch. So let's go with that. But uh, we are running out of time. So uh, let's let Seth and, and Kim give a little bit of a, a final speech here. And then we'll, uh, we'll carry on with the after networking networking. And we can, we can keep this going. But let's have an official uh, closeout by both Seth and Kim. Okay, great. Well, first of all, thank you so much, of course. And um, we're Soil for Climate, and we advocate for soils a climate solution. Um, we sell these awesome hats, and I saw someone else out there was wearing one. So feel free to order them from our website. We are 501 in the United States. That means we're a nonprofit charitable organization. So donations are tax deductible. Um, and we have a, uh, a project in Kenya that I didn't have a chance to talk about at all, but it really is the love of my heart at this point. I'm really going to be working on that. And we're working with the Maasai community there and, uh, and, and, and we want to restore the Maasai lands with, with regenerative grazing. So if you go to the Sulfur Climate uh, uh, Facebook page and I mean uh, the, the website, you know, and look at the Maasai project, um, 
it, it's just something we that's really close to my heart, you know, honestly. And uh, and if you know people who can help fund it, uh, we're we're saying three hundred dollars buys you a cow, three thousand gets you a herd, and a couple hundred thousand, <laughs> you know, will restore a whole watershed. So. Talk to me later about that. Okay, so anyway, I, I just wanted to hit on what are typical points of misunderstanding. I won't get into them now because I know we're really running out of time, but, but one is that stopping the admissions or reducing the admissions isn't good enough. We have to get to profound drawdown. And, and that's the problem with the whole, getting back to the whole less meat and synthetic meat. They say, oh, well, we're not as bad. It's, you're missing the point. Is we're not we're not less bad isn't okay anymore. We have to be doing profound good. We have to be restoring billions of acres of land. Okay, restoring it, and most of that that land is a dry land ecosystem, and will involve grazing. Second, um, there's not oh there's not enough land for regenerative grazing. Again, they're missing the whole point of restoration. There's plenty of land. The world is underpopulated with large animals. Large parts of the world today, which we just sort of write off, can be productive for grazing. There's plenty of land. Most of the grazing areas of the land are understocked. Um, how carbon gets into the ground? Well, Kimberly talked about this. Most people think it's from, well, again, the leaves or whatever falling out. No, it's from the roots. The roots exudate, root exudates. It's like the sap that, that the roots admit. So it's a photosynthetic living process. And then the last thing, oh, how long does it take? It's profound misunderstanding about that. And um, that comes from Darwin who went to the Colosseum in Rome and he saw two inches of soil on top of the Colosseum. And he says, well, it's 2000 years old. It must be an inch every thousand years. And that's literally where the, the, the thinking of, of uh, an, an, you know, an inch a thousand years. So anyway, those are my pet peeves about common misunderstandings. All right, thank you. Excellent, thanks Seth. Uh, just a little tidbit here. Where else could you buy a cow for $300? Come on, like everybody should be buying Seth's uh, organization there at Cow. $300 and you get your own cow. You yeah, betcha. You, you get to name it as well. <laughs> there you go. Everybody, make sure you uh, go to Soil for Climate and buy a cow for 300 bucks. Okay, Kim, what's your closeout? My closeout is actually one more kind of uh, brief reference to Charles Massey and, and, and a reminder that the FIN AGM is from the 9th to the 11th um, and you just have to buy a membership to a fin and then it's free to attend with your membership and membership is quite reasonable for an on an annual basis so um i i've shared the link and i can share it again um but it is the the thing that struck me the most over the last couple of weeks is that um we have currently a system of that has a very, these are Charles Massey's words, we have a, a, a thick legitimacy or a thick logic uh, surrounding the ways that we have produced food in the past through conventional agriculture. And we don't question a lot of those things as a society. And um, when we start doing regenerative agriculture, we fly in the face of that very like steeped logic and, and legitimacy that we have in our culture and that the implementation of regenerative agricultural practices and, and grazing and other photosynthetically derived carbon as being a climate solution 
is it truly does fly in the face of that. And he call and Charles Massey calls it a courageous act because it is going against all of what we've been taught in school and what still many universities are teaching. And, but he talks about it as it is the greatest single thing we can do that can bring us back from the Anthropocene or the, the brink of destruction of the human race that we are sitting, sitting at the, on that point. And, and we have no historical parallel to the position we are currently in. And so the, any ability that we can to scale regenerative practices and to have more land sequestering carbon and increasing its water holding capacity in infiltration and its climate adaptation as well as mitigation possibilities uh, to ensure our food supply, I think is, is pretty much the most important thing that anybody could be working on right now. Excellent. Well said, well said. See, that's why Kimberly's not host tonight. Um, <laughs> I could not say that near as well as she just did. So excellent. Thank you, Kim. Uh, and again, uh, Finn, for anybody who doesn't know, the Alberta Forge Industry Network, they are also uh, not only their AGMs coming up, but they also are running Farming the Web, which is the new uh, site that is for uh, you know buying and selling uh products in Alberta. So uh, make sure you check that out as well. So yeah, that we're going to close it out here for tonight. Um, big thank you to the Gateway Research Organization again for hosting us. Uh, Gray Wooded Ford Association as well. Um, thank you very much, Brenda, for, for being on here tonight. Uh, I think Jay technically is uh, representing Grow here tonight. Um, that's excellent to have him on here. And thanks to everybody else to come. Thanks to Seth and Kim for all your knowledge and wisdom.